Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, I'm excited. This is the first time we're doing this. We are launching a series. So for this pod and the two episodes that follow, it's they're gonna it's all gonna have a theme. And the theme is I hesitate a little bit to say this because I don't really love this term, but this the theme is self-compassion. I don't like that term. It sounds vaguely autoerotic or just really schmoopy and lame, but it's an incredibly useful concept. I mean, that we've been trying to figure out new ways to talk about it, like self-care without being selfish or going easy without going soft or go easy with the internal cattle prod, which is the way I talked about it in 10% Happier. Nonetheless, as I say, it's an incredibly useful, I have found it to be an incredibly useful concept because we, especially here in the West, uh, many of us do an enormous amount of self-laceration, self-judgment. And I, I am, of course, as a, you know, type A ambitious person of the view that a certain amount of dry eyed self-analysis makes sense, you know, taking a good look at, you know, where you've made suboptimal decisions or uh, areas where you can do make some improvements. All of that makes a lot of sense. So I'm not of the view that we shouldn't be evaluating our work critically. It's just that we add layers and layers of shame uh, and self-hatred, which I think which I think we think or I, I have historically thought made me better, uh, boosted my edge. But I, I, there's a significant amount of evidence now that it actually reduces your ability to focus and be resilient. And it ends up in many ways hurting your relationships with other people, which, of course, you need in order to be successful. So guest number one is Jocelyn Gly. I heard about her courtesy of past guest on the show, uh, 7A Selassie, who's also one of the most popular teachers in the 10% Happier app. Seb uh, recommended I check out Jocelyn's podcast, which is called Hurry Slowly. Uh, she describes it as a podcast about how you can be more productive, creative, and resilient through the simple act of slowing down. And uh, Jocelyn has that podcast. She's also written books about you know doing creative work in the age of distraction. And the first thing I listened to from Jocelyn was a, pod- a short podcast about a term she invented called productivity shame, which totally landed for me because I spend an enormous amount of time feeling shame for not getting everything done that I need to get done. And she had an enormous number of useful, insightful, and helpful things to say on the subject. You will hear them now for yourself. Uh, We also talk about, uh, this is another term she invented. I don't love it just because you'll hear why because of my personal tastes, but I I don't love the term itself, but I love the idea. Uh, She calls it heart-centered productivity. So, yeah. Uh, She also, another term that falls in the same bucket, great idea. I might quibble with the languaging a little bit, given my uh, idiosyncrasies. Uh, Tender discipline. Uh, That's another term she coined. Uh, The idea that we can be, we can have discipline, we can work toward deadlines, but we can do it in a way that isn't so self-lacerating. We talk about how to set realistic deadlines. We talk about actually enjoying the process of doing your work. And we talk about sane email practices. So a lot here. Uh, Before we dive in, I just want to say that if you are interested in issues relating to focus, we have two courses, excellent courses, with the eminent meditation teacher Sharon Salzberg up on the 10% Happier app. 
And if you're new to the app, don't forget, you can always check it out with a seven-day free trial. Enough from me. Here we go. Jocelyn K. Gly. So cool to meet you. I said to you when I um, I walked in the room, I feel like I know you because I've been listening to your podcast so much. <laughs> don't feel like I – well, maybe I don't feel like I know you, but I feel like you've been in my head. <laughs> a lot of people have that feeling. It's kind of funny having a podcast, and maybe you've experienced this. Some friends of mine – feel like we're in touch when I haven't spoken to them for months because they listen to the podcast. <laughs> it's really good stuff. Um, Thank you. I, I, let me just, I would love to hear a little bit of your background. Mm-hmm. How did you get so interested in issues related to, I don't know if this is the right word to use, but productivity mm-hmm. and how we work? How, wh- why is this such a huge focus for you? Well, so prior to doing the podcast Hurry Slowly, I was working at, it was essentially at the time sort of a startup inside another startup called 99U, which is part of this larger company called Behance, um, which is kind of the LinkedIn of the creative world. And I ran the smaller part of it, which was called 99U, which was a website that had interviews and articles and tips. It was a book series that I created. And it was also a big um, conference that uh, happens actually across the street here at Alice Tully Hall at Lincoln Center. And um, it was all about how people make ideas happen. So the name 99U actually comes from that Thomas Edison quote, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. (laughs) And so the sort of mission of the entire brand was really to – not explore inspiration, like how people get ideas, because we felt like there's so much content around that. And that's not the part that's really hard. The hard part is kind of seeing something through, right, executing on an idea. And so in the process of, um, you know, editing this website and curating speakers for this conference and creating this book series, um, I interviewed, you know, hundreds of creatives and designers and entrepreneurs about, you know, how they make ideas happen, how they organize their days, how they build their careers. And so that really kind of led me down this path of really looking pretty deeply at productivity and and also creativity. Why do you think it's such a big issue right now? Productivity? Yeah. It feels to me like people are, I mean, I think the answer is, I shouldn't have asked this question like the answer isn't super obvious, but it feels to me like uh, this that I hear about this a lot now. People having trouble getting stuff done now because we're so bombarded by technology. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a number of causes, um, but I think one of the biggest ones is you know you mentioned technology, but so much of the shift in technology has been about shifting the onus specifically onto the individual. So if you think about, you know, sort of the flattening of the workplace, um, you know, and of course developments like email and Slack and all of these things, they sort of bring more and more work specifically onto the individual. And and there's also been sort of, um, I think, a little bit of maybe a fragmentation of the traditional job. So it's not just like you're doing kind of one task. Many people are juggling a lot of different projects. And there's other things as well, but Kind of that's the overarching idea. And so I think all of those factors mean that there's this onus of self-management that we have um, that has really emerged in the past 10 or 20 years, which is really new and is really difficult and really demands a lot of that sort of like frontal lobe executive functioning to really switch between tasks and manage multiple projects and 
track how you're doing in a way that is pretty new. You know, you used to have more support, I think, more managing, more mentoring. Um, and also, of course, you know, there's so many new freedoms, right? You can work for yourself. You can work from anywhere. But all that means that there's a lot more responsibility on you. And so I think that's kind of why we're thinking individually and reflecting internally like so much more about productivity. A lot a lot of your work is kind of a reaction against what you call fake productivity or sort of the toxicity of some of the self-help around in this area. So what's your beef with the way this subject is most often discussed? Well, I think if fake productivity is less about how other people talk about productivity and more about what we um, get sucked into feeling as productive or what we get sucked into doing with our time. And a huge part of that is the technology piece that you referred to. So, you know, if you look at things like I mentioned email, I mentioned Slack, or you mentioned, you know, social media, um, these things really – you know, the way that they're engineered, right, by these technologists to kind of tap into some um, key behaviors that we as humans find rewarding. So if you think about them, there's a concept called completion bias, right? The humans like um, to recognize a task as complete. And when we recognize a task as complete, we get a little hit of dopamine that makes us want to sort of repeat those behaviors. But what it means is it also makes us sort of predisposed to like to do quick, easy-to-finish tasks. Um, and it also means that we really like to see progress, right? And so if you think about something like email or checking your Slack notifications or checking your social media notifications, those are really quick, easy-to-finish tasks. And they're also tasks where you get to see progress, right? You kind of get to whittle down that notification count or that message count. Um, and those – the those features of those technologies, I think, really pull us into doing that kind of work that feels, in a surfacey way, productive, right? Like, I had 50 unread messages, and now I got to inbox zero. Like, it, it sort of feels good in the short term. Um, but, you know, then you kind of look up at the end of the day, and you've been busy all day, and yet you feel like you did nothing that was and You're meaningful. responding to other people's priorities, not your own. Precisely. That's a lot of the frustration mm -hmm. I have, is, is I spend so much time yanked around by other people's mm -hmm. demands, just dealing with the incoming as opposed to doing proactive work. Yeah. Well, and I think there's this um, there's this, this other concept that I talk about, which is the um, rule of reciprocation, which is this idea that we as another sort of human behavior thing, right? And this, this idea that as humans, we're raised to be social animals and um, we want to return a positive action with another action, right? So if you, like, give me a birthday present, then when it's your birthday, I kind of feel like I should give you a birthday present. And for the most part, you know, that's good. It sort of encourages the social contract, right, and um, encourages sort of fluid human relations. But one of the interesting things about that is that I want to reciprocate even if I didn't want you to do the thing that you did for me, right? And so if you think about this, like, fire hose of, as you say, you know, emails or demands and requests that we receive, there's this sort of like core human part of us that wants to reciprocate. But the problem is in this digital space, there's no boundaries, right? Your inbox never shuts down. It's never like Dan is busy, like he cannot manage, you know, he only has 24 hours in a day, he's exhausted, and he can't handle any more emails. So we're not accepting it, right? The digital world is like, just bring it in, bring it in, no boundaries, you know? Um, and so that kind of leads us into this, you know, we're now in this space where 
you could run your entire life based on other people's requests and demands, right? And so there's this, we talked about kind of the, the onus of self-management a minute ago. And so there, a huge part of that now is really about setting boundaries and saying no in a way that I feel like is fairly unprecedented and it's quite difficult. I want to highlight that I conflated two concepts earlier. One was fake productivity and the other is kind of your critique of self-help. So we'll get to your critique of self-help for a second, in, in a second. But let's just stay with stake, fake productivity. I, I guess two questions are coming up. You can take them in whatever order you want. One is that – so I've kind of de facto designated Saturday, which is a work day for me because I anchor Good Morning America on the weekends. But Saturday after I finish the show, I usually set aside a few hours to deal with my email backlog. And I feel reasonably good when I finish it because a lot of it is – it's a lot of work, and if I don't do it, you know, it's I feel antisocial. So, is that truly fake productivity? So, one question, and the other question is, how do you set boundaries and start saying no? So, those are two totally unrelated questions, I think, but but uh, they're both in my head, so I'm throwing them at you. Mm-hmm. I'll remind you if you whatever one. Yeah, you I may need a reminder. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I don't think that's. I mean, certainly a a portion of your emails are valuable and are related to, you know, things that you need to do that are related probably to important important goals that are meaningful to you that you want to accomplish, right? Are 100% of those emails related to those types of things? Most certainly not. Um, I remember looking at, there's a pretty interesting study that was done in the Harvard Business Review a while ago with senior management. So people you would think are pretty good at managing their time, they're successful. Um, and they looked at how they use their email And there were a number of stats, but one of them was that basically about 50% of the emails that those people responded to were emails that had nothing to do with their job and they didn't really need to respond to. Um, You know, so that's senior managers wasting maybe 50% of their time responding to emails that are not relevant, right? And I think that's the way that all of us react. You know, there's a lot of, you know, we have that urge to reciprocate. And so we end up responding to things that maybe are not that important, um, and the other thing that I think happens with email is specifically is like, you know, the way that your inbox is organized, everything sort of looks like an equal priority, right? It's not like, I mean, maybe Gmail could tag something, a priority sender, but you know, there's not weight given to things that are more important. And so it sort of lures you into this, um, you know, habit of just responding to everything as if it were of equal importance. Um, so like one of my rules for myself is like not to treat emails from strangers as if they were urgent, you know, just like a tiny little shift to make. Right. And I mean, maybe it could be, uh, you know, maybe you might be an important stranger, like coming on this podcast is a, you know, good and valuable thing for me to do, but that's kind of a rarity in terms of, you know, people you don't know getting in touch with you. Um, so I would say, yes, part of that, of course, is part of that by that. I mean, checking your email is valuable productivity, but I think a huge part of it is, not, you know, and I think we kind of get sucked into treating everything almost as if it were equal. Um, to answer your second question, which is about how do we set boundaries and say no? I guess not totally related, <laughs> right? Because a lot of the stuff that comes over the transom on email is, I'm from, I'll speak for myself, is strangers or people I kind of know or even people I know really well just asking me for something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to do it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it takes away from the stuff I'm getting paid to do, you know, uh, yeah. I want to be a good citizen and a good friend and all that stuff, but it's just overwhelming. 
Yeah, well, and I think, um, I mean, we could probably do like a whole podcast on saying no or multiple podcasts on saying no, but a couple of ideas. I mean, I think the, the first thing is that because it's so easy for us to just swim in the sea of responding to other people's requests, you know, we have that sort of sense that, you know, maybe at the end of the day, we, we just kind of did busy work or we didn't do stuff that was that meaningful. But I think because we're so caught up in this emails and going to meetings and kind of running around like chickens with our head cut off um, from one thing to the next, we don't take time to get really clear on our goals and thinking about what are the things that I want to do that would be meaningful? You know, what what is the stuff that I would find rewarding in the grand scheme of things? And if you don't identify that stuff, how do you know what things to say no to, right? If you're setting boundaries, you kind of have to set those boundaries around something, right? And in, in this case, right, the boundaries would go around, like, I want to protect these things that I think are meaningful. But I think most of us are so caught up in this rat race that we don't even take time out to do that. So, you know, of course, making time to do that, which is fairly obvious, sort of the first thing, and yet we don't do it. Um, and the second thing, like a super, super small thing that I think is really interesting is um, – Shifting when you're responding to emails and when you're saying no to things from saying I can't do that to I don't do that. So, you know, like I rather than saying I can't check emails on Saturdays, saying I don't check emails on Saturdays or um, rather than saying I can't miss my gym workout, I don't miss my gym workout. Mm -hmm. um, and that comes out of this study that was done. It looked at people and I think it was specifically New Year's resolutions and how to get them to stick to those resolutions. And so the study was really actually about self-talk. How do you talk to yourself internally? And they found that when people would say, you know, I don't miss my gym workout rather than I can't miss my gym workout, um, they were more likely to do their gym workout. But I think it actually carries over to email, for instance, um, in a really useful way and for a couple reasons. Um, one, because you know, I think the thinking behind this is that when you say you can't do something, it sort of implies like, well, I can't do it now under these circumstances, but if the circumstances were different, then I could, right? So it, it often leaves the door open for someone to kind of come back at you with that request in a different form. Um, whereas when you say you don't do something, it sort of gives a sense of like a hard and fast rule or principle. And when you frame it that way, you usually have to come up with a reason why, you know, so if Someone was asking me to do a speaking gig, for instance, and I was going to say, you know, I, I don't do speaking engagements or I don't do speaking engagements in the summer. There's sort of a natural like why, you know, so it kind of almost asks you to form some principles around why you're saying no, mm -hmm. which is interesting. Um, but the other thing is it depersonalizes it. Right. So it's not I, I can't do your speaking engagement. It's like I don't do speaking engagements. It's just not something that I do. You, is that true for you? No, that's not true. That's just an example. Um, but I, I do them only very rarely. Um, but so, you know, so it kind of depersonalizes as well, which I think is one of the things that people find so challenging with saying no is, you know, that, that sort of personal aspect. I like that a lot. Just to go back to another thing that you said about prioritization, I went through a process recently using – there's a website called Trello where they you, – you can create these kind of boards – Trello boards, you're familiar with your, you're not. I haven't right. used Trello, but I am familiar with it, yeah. Uh, so the CEO of 10% Happier was a little concerned slash frustrated with me for being overwhelmed and complaining about it a lot. And he's like, all right, <laughs> we're going to create a board. I don't know if I can describe Trello well enough, but basically you can create a board of your priorities. You can do it with anything, but in this case, we're doing my priorities. And um, I found it really useful 
to, it was clear that in the highest level priority, there are really only two or three things. And then you, we graded them mid, low, not now, not ever. And that really gave me a lot of clarity. And then we, we did it with a little committee that was the CEO, my wife, who's very generous with her time as it pertains to me. And I'm not sure this is, translates to all relationships, but the nature of our relationship, she's like, you know, very much you know, very involved in helping me be a better person generally and also just work more efficiently and, and wisely. And then also another colleague, uh, my colleague Grace Livingston, who's one of the producers on this show and also works with me on this new book I'm writing. So this little committee of the four of us, and we actually are now meeting regularly to go back over the Trello board. Does this all sound like – does this jibe with your philosophy about how to, how to work uh, in a more effective way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, we were we were uh, talking about before we kind of got on the air live here was, um, you know, related to this podcast. I also created a course which is called Reset. And the whole first section of that course is um, about intention and motivation. And the first lesson in the course is literally about setting goals. And it's actually also about the psychology of how we think about our goals, which is kind of interesting. Um but the reason that I have people do that at the outset, which is actually kind of difficult, it's not like a particularly pleasant way to start the course because it involves like a lot of soul searching. Yeah. And so some people kind of are like, oh, they find it like a little bit challenging, um, understandably. Um, but the reason that um, I do that, and so it starts out with setting goals and then it talks about how to um, track and kind of celebrate your progress, which is probably part of sort of a, um unintentional side effect of having the Trello board. Um, is that you get to see yourself ticking those priorities mm-hmm. off and mm-hmm. kind of recognizing as a group and, and looking at where your progress is. And the other thing that's happening for you with that as well, which um, we talk about in the third lesson um, in this intention and motivation section, is accountability, right? So not relying on your own willpower alone to you know complete some sort of long-term project. And the reason that um, we start out with that stuff and goals in particular is, you know, what I touched on earlier is that you have to have that framework in order to set boundaries and say no, in order to um, look at your calendar and say, well, what am I really trying to carve time out for, right? If you're, if you're trying to kind of fend off all these meetings and other requests, you have to be kind of clear on like, okay, well, what do I need time for and what am I trying to accomplish or what meetings do align with my priorities? And if you're not clear on those things, you're just, how are you going to make any decisions, you know? And then how are you going to um, set boundaries and, and say no and kind of do all of that stuff, you know? Um, which as we talk about it, it's, you know, as I say, it's kind of, it's kind of obvious, but I think that we're just, you know, there's so many things that are always here to occupy our time that, um, you know, you really have to be intentional about carving out space to to think about that stuff. The accountability piece for me has been huge. I, I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty new to this, to thinking about how to work in a way that isn't so frantic. And I'll just, you know, I, again, I don't want to say talk. I'm going to talk more about what's going on with me and my wife, but I don't want to say it in a way that. Every I, I know plenty. I have plenty of close friends with wonderful marriages where this wouldn't work, right? They just the nature of their relationship isn't. So I don't want to say that if this doesn't work for your marriage, that somehow your marriage is jacked up. What I'm saying is, in my relationship with my wife, I she's my number one closest advisor, and she has the bandwidth to lean in and advise me. So we now do this thing after we created the Trello board that 
not only do the does the little committee of four get together once every six or so weeks to check in on the Trello board, but Bianca and I, every Sunday afternoon, get together and just talk about, did I, you know, we look back over the calendar for the last week, did I do the things I said I was going to do, and what's coming up this week? And, you know, I have big chunks of time carved out for the book, and sometimes that those chunks get whittled down because of other requests that have come over the transom and we evaluate together, like, did I make the right decision this past week in saying yes to these things that took away from my main priority, which is finishing my book, et cetera, et cetera. And I've just found having somebody I really trust who's on my side working through this with me to be incredibly valuable. Yeah, I mean, I think we all have this sense, and certainly I used to have this sense that, you know, if you couldn't complete some massive project on willpower alone, you know, that you're falling short or failing in some way, right? Um, and I was, you know, I would frequently take on projects with creating like no accountability or having no sort of partner to help me. And um, now I actually work with a with a coach, which I found incredibly helpful. And you can tell me if this is true for you, but I think one of the the biggest byproducts of that, of having, you know, it could be a collaborator, a coach, an accountability partner, whoever it is for you, is if you are, um, like myself, a very ambitious, very achievement-oriented person, um, as I believe you are as well, um, what you tend to do is you tend to never think about what you've accomplished. You're just always looking forward to the Mm -hmm. next thing, right, what we haven't accomplished. And when you have that accountability partner, in this case, your wife, in my case, a coach, um, I find that I spend a lot more time recognizing Mm. what I've accomplished, right? Because when you have that meeting and you get kind of excited, right? You know you're going to have that meeting. And so you sort of think about like, oh, well, have I done that thing? And have I done that thing? And yes, I have. Or no, I haven't done that thing. But for me, taking the dialogue out of just driving myself internally and sharing it with someone else and having an accountability partner – means a lot more recognition of progress, which then, of course, makes you feel good, you know, whereas opposed, um, whereas, you know, when it was all internal, I would never recognize that stuff and only be focused on what I hadn't accomplished yet. And I think that is a profound shift, um, you know, and one that really allows you to be more compassionate with yourself. Well, say more about that, because it was I actually... I'm scrawling notes to myself as we're writing here and the thing I had written down that I wanted to get to, I have a long list here, but one of the things I had uh, um, just written down was celebration, you know, celebrating things you've done. I feel like I do a terrible job at that, even though I now have this newly minted accountability partner. I don't think we're really celebrating that much, Um, but it's, I, I noticed that uh, in your work and, and, I don't fully understand how to do it. And so I, th- I thought it might make sense for you to say more about it. Yeah. Well, and so this, the idea of, of celebrating progress is, is one that I mentioned um, that I do teach in this, in this course because I feel it's incredibly important. And that really originally came to me out of this research of um, Teresa Amabile, who is a professor and researcher at uh, the Harvard Business School. And she wrote a really wonderful book called The Progress Principle. And she uh, did a study, um, she did a fairly long-term study. I'm trying to remember how many people it was. Um, It wasn't huge, maybe like 400 people. In any case, she um, had them keep a daily journal for about six months. Um, These are people at work. So they had to write at the end of the day for about five minutes, you know, what were your um, major victories and what were your setbacks during the day? 
Um, and so she, you know, then took all the data from these journals, kind of, you know, um, crunched the numbers or crunched the feedback, so to speak. And what she found was that what made what had the biggest impact on people's mood, their um, sense of well-being, and their sense of motivation was making meaningful progress at work. Um, but it wasn't, you know, one thing that she talks about is this concept of small wins. It was sort of these baby steps, right? And acknowledging those baby steps, um, which is something that I think we really tend not to do. And so for me, that's kind of underpinning this idea of thinking about, okay, well, how do we track our progress and how do we celebrate our progress? And in a sense, you know, you're saying, well, I'm not really celebrating, but I think just the tracking and the recognition of the progress is in a sense a celebration in itself because it's something that we normally completely just kind of blow right by as we're, you know, in pursuit of these goals. Um, so I think actually um, tracking that progress in a very analog way um, is what I recommend. So, you know, when I was working on a book, I had a, you know, handwritten calendar and, um, you know, I write down my words written every day as a way of kind of tracking and celebrating my progress. Um, but, you know, there's many different things. Like if you're a, you know, salesperson, it could be like, you know, cold calls made per week. Um, you know, if you're a programmer, it could be lines of code written. It could be anything. Um, but I think that act of tracking the progress and of making it analog, because for me, there's something about um, when it's analog, it's usually visible, right? So however you're tracking this progress, like creating a system for yourself and literally putting it up like on a wall in your workspace so you kind of see it in a regular way, literally see yourself making progress. Um, you can, of course, do this with digital apps. Um, for myself personally, I find that um, there's something much more rewarding about just kind of being confronted with it constantly um, and just kind of updating it by hand. I'm having a little bit of self-criticism because what I really – I got, I got the, this is such an important topic to me right now as I struggle to write my current book that I, I, I'm getting a little excited and just chasing all the shiny objects and asking you a million questions. But I don't think I really gave you an opportunity to describe sort of what your core philosophy is. B before we do that, though, let me just go back to the, one of the questions I asked early on, but I didn't ask um, in the right way, which is, you know what? It seems to me like much of your work is reacting against the way productivity is talked about, and I'd, I'd be interested to hear that critique and then move into sort of what you actually stand for. Right. Well, yeah, those two things are completely related. So I think to the way that I kind of um, categorize what I talk about on the podcast and what I teach in the course is this idea of kind of heart-centered productivity. Um, which is easiest to talk about by talking about kind of what it's not, which is sort of the critique of what's happening now. And that's this, um, I think, really like a sort of speed-obsessed idea of productivity. Um, so, and I think a, we've gotten to this place, um, really comes out of the way that technology has kind of um, slowly, and I would even say a little bit insidiously, kind of changed our values. I think of it as, I, I call it sort of like digital. We have these digital values that we've kind of absorbed through this 24-7 interaction with technology. Um, 
And I think of those values as being um, a couple of different things. Um, Instant gratification, focus on instant gratification, a focus on short-term rewards, and um, this kind of feeling of like no boundaries, or you could say like exponential growth or freedom. So instant gratification, um, you know, you look at, we talked about Slack, right? I can instantly message you. I can instantly get in touch with you. You think about Netflix, Spotify, Amazon Prime, Uber, right? All of these ways in which you can get music, movies, groceries, a taxi, another person's attention, right? Completely kind of on demand, right? And so you start to have this feeling that maybe you should be able to execute on demand, right? It kind of seeps in. Um, Thinking about this idea of short-term rewards, obviously that's kind of related to instant gratification. But again, going back to what we touched on, on thinking about email or thinking about um, Slack or just checking your social media notifications, right? These are, you get these little kind of, we talked about that completion bias, right? You get that little hit of dopamine when you complete this task and it kind of reinforces this idea of short-term rewards, right? Of getting something really, really quickly. Um, but of course, the work that we do that really has meaning usually is long-term and it takes a long time, like writing a book, which you're working on now, right? And so it's challenging and it's difficult and it's very opposed to that kind of modality of thinking. Um, and then this um, no boundaries piece, you know, I constantly, um, you know, I think this idea of the digital self, which we a little bit touched on earlier, is this, you know, I'm available 24-7. I'm always on, right? You know, I don't have a door to my office. I don't have an office anymore. I'm working in an open plan space. You know, you don't leave work at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m., right? Your email follows you everywhere. Um, and then, you know, there's all these kind of startup stories of, like, exponential growth and, you know, this feeling that, like, everything should be able to expand infinitely, um, and so there's just really this feeling of um, kind of no boundaries um, that we get from our technological interactions. And so all of those things, instant gratification, short-term rewards, no boundaries, are kind of in service of this idea of like speed and efficiency, again, you know, over everything else, right? Um, and I think the problem with that is that it's, fundamentally opposed to how we work as humans, you know, to our well-being. And I think it's also fundamentally opposed to doing anything that's creative because it's kind of fundamentally opposed to the creative process, which is by nature an inefficient process um, that cannot be, um, you know, improved and made more efficient in the way that you could make like a Ford assembly line more efficient. So this idea of heart-centered productivity um, that I talk about is kind of like, okay, let's, let's discard the super efficiency, speed-focused um, approach, which is really leading us into burnout. Um, you know, there's a, a study that's done every year called the General Social Survey, um, which looks at about, I think they talked about 36,000 people in America, kind of ask them, you know, how they're doing, and part of it is about work. And they ask people, are you regularly exhausted from your work? And they did that study a couple years ago, and 50% of people said, I'm regularly exhausted from work, right? So there really is this kind of rising burnout phenomenon. I think it's, it's from this speed-obsessed way of working. Um, 
And so it's leading us into burnout. And it's also as, you know, just pulling, even as we're headed into burnout, we're not really doing work that feels meaningful Mm -hmm. because you can't do work that's meaningful in this way. So that's kind of, that's kind of the critique. And then, you know, for me, the, the sort of solution is, is moving to the sort of more heart centered way of working. So what does that look like? Heart centered productivity? Yeah. I mean, so I think it's, you know, we've touched on some of it already, right? So we talked about, um, this idea of, you know, let's say kind of tracking your progress and celebrating your progress. Um, but it really is about moving out of, I mean, that's one aspect of it. Um, but it's really about a few different things. I mean, really kind of getting back into your body. I think our speed obsessed approach kind of pulls us super into the head, super into anxiety, um, super into a really stressed out place. So kind of getting back into the body. So a lot of um, what I talk about in the course is um, about your kind of natural circadian rhythm, right? So the 24-hour cycle of energy peaks and dips that we all naturally go through over the course of a day um, and kind of learning how to align your work with those natural body rhythms and, and like what those body rhythms are, what are, you know, when is your kind of cognitive energy peak? Like when is a good time to exercise? When do you need to take a break? How do you figure that out? Well, it's, I mean, there is a, the simplest way, there's kind of three, there's sort of three different archetypes, right? There's the kind of regular bird, early bird, night owl type of archetype. Um, what about like wounded bird? I think that's oh, you know, wo- like wounded bird. one well, working leg, half a right. working wing. Right. That's, so that's, a, that's out of, that's out of alignment okay. with your circadian rhythm. I see. <laughs> the right. Wounded okay. Bird. That's trying to do too much. <laughs> um, but in terms of, you know, and so the easiest way to think about it is um, thinking about kind of when you uh, like to go to sleep and when you like to go to, when you like to wake up, when you're kind of in your, you know, most natural kind of modality. Um, I mean, I asked, I remember asking a scientist, like, how, well, how can I exactly figure out my circadian rhythm? And in effect, you would literally have to, it's related to core body temperature and you would literally have to have a thermometer in your butt for like three weeks <laughs> monitoring your temperature constantly to figure out your precise circadian rhythm. So it's like a, a very, um, it's an evolving science still and there's not like a simple diagnostic questionnaire you can take. Um, but the easiest thing is to look at sleep patterns. Um, and, you know, early bird is someone who likes to wake up at, you know, 5 a.m. ish. Regular bird is someone who likes to wake up maybe seven, seven thirty, uh-huh. eight ish, and then night owl is usually more of you know someone who really doesn't want to get up until ten a.m. to eleven a.m. Um, and in the course, I kind of go through and break down like, okay, well, what does that kind of look like for your circadian rhythm um, throughout the day? And, and and in any case, to kind of circle back to kind of answering your question about heart centered productivity without getting too lost in the circadian rhythm. Um, you know, there's, there's an aspect of really coming back into the body and figuring out, oh, like, oh my body and my brain are like a player in this, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's actually like a really powerful tool that if rather than kind of running roughshod over my body, if I were to actually like think about how I could align with it, then I can work in a way that is actually more productive, um, and much more powerful, um, while doing less time because I'm kind of working within my natural energy peaks. Um, so that's part of it. And then, um, again, a huge part is about kind of setting, you know, setting boundaries as we talked about. Um, but there's another huge part that's really about shifting, um, 
the way that we frame our productivity and kind of the way that we talk to ourselves in our head about it. Um, because I think there's so much, um, there's just so much self-criticism, right? We've kind of, um, as you said at the outset, this we just all sort of like fully imbibe this notion of like productivity and like being good workers and we have to be productive. And that's even how we maybe review our day. Like, did I have a productive day? It's like a question we ask ourselves, right? Um, somehow that's become the yardstick. Um, but I think that leads to a, a ton of really um, beating ourselves up because we, we are getting kind of getting pushed by these tides of other people's requests and demands, like we talked about, to kind of take on too much and get overwhelmed. And then we, you know, end up, then we kind of end up beating ourselves up. And so a lot of this, this shift that I try to affect with the course and this idea of heart-centered productivity is really about, I mean, it's really about just kind of getting back to sort of a more natural, um, humane way of working, but also just understanding our limitations, like understanding literally, like what are your limitations? And I think people find it a real relief, you know, when I say, you know, so we talk about like how much good attention can someone exercise in a day? You know, and even if you look at the science of peak performance, it's like four to four and a half hours a day of like really like hard concerted attention at a max that most people can execute. And when you tell people that, they're like, oh, it's, it's like a relief. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're like, you know, so then you feel like, oh, if I got, you know, if I was able to write for two hours, three hours, that's like a good, that's a good day. So if know? I'm carving out, I sometimes will carve out eight, uh, clear a whole day for writing. But I know I never use all that time for writing because I just can't do it. Or I and I feel like a failure. But you're so you're saying I probably shouldn't be carving that much time or, or uh... precisely. Yeah. And I mean, this is this is I mean, I think this is um, it's completely normal. Right. What, what you're saying. I think we all have that feeling. And particularly with creative projects, I think there's this impetus to like I can't get anything done unless I have this huge kind of open block of time. Right. And then. And then, yeah, I don't know, you read these stories about whatever, like Raymond Carver writing for like 14 hours a day, and you're like, okay, well, I could probably do eight hours a day, you know? Um, but so it's really about, you know, adjusting those expectations to like what's realistic to ask of yourself and then working with that. And then it really allows you to, um, you know, you're just being literally realistic about your expectations. And so you can feel good about what you've gotten done in a day. Um and it really is true that um, most people, if you, you know, you look at um, one of the examples, um, I talked to a guy, Alex Pang, who wrote a really great book called Rest. Um, and he kind of collected a bunch of, you know, sort of data and anecdotes um, about, um, you know, some of the greatest kind of artists and scientists um, around and how much they, you know, kind of worked in a day. And the number that he came to was really like three or four hours, you know, when you're looking at someone like Charles Darwin, you know, like that's how much he was working in a day in terms of like concerted effort. Um, what was he doing the rest of the day? Checking email? He was actually going for very long walks. Huh. Um, so, you know, could you use that whole eight hours for something related to writing? Yes, maybe not writing itself, right? You know, right. but um, because there is that whole, and I think this is precisely the problem, right? We just think 
that we only need time for execution, right? We don't need time for reflection or to figure out what you're going to write about. Some Who knows where that's happening, but somehow, right, it's happening somewhere. You don't need to carve out time for that. What you need to carve out time for is like sitting there and like writing, you know? But of course, there's this whole, and that kind of gets back to what we were talking about, this idea of the creative process is something kind of inefficient and organic and, you know, really where you can create the time and you can show up, but kind of inspiration is a little bit on its own schedule. Um, but it's certainly not going to arrive if there's like no space for it to come in and kind of enter your brain, right? As you're running from this engagement to that engagement to this meeting, right? And so I think there is a whole part of carving out that time that is is carving out time just for, um, you know, that reflection and, and some of the less tangible parts of the creative process. Is your work and advice and course really only directed at people who are doing creative work or is it for anybody doing any work of any sort? It is for anybody doing any work of any sort. Um, I think generally speaking, um, it is for people who have some level of autonomy over their schedule because if you are working within a schedule um, that you cannot control in any way, um, you probably couldn't do some of the things that I might recommend doing. Right. Widget Um, assembly line workers (laughs) can't do this stuff. Right. Or let's say, you know, you do – you know, you do customer service nine to five and you have to be on email constantly. And I think you still could take some things away. But you know what I mean? There's certain certain roles that are more rigid than others. Um, but in terms of answering your question about creativity, I mean, I think that creativity, it's not about, you know, being a designer or photographer or an artist. I mean, creativity is um, just about problem solving, you know, and I think we all do it. I think engineers do it. I think mothers do it and raising a child. I think that, um, you know, even answering customer service questions requires some level of creativity. So I think that the creativity piece, it's actually at the end of my um, podcast, I usually ask people five questions. And one of the questions that I always ask them is, um, how would you define creativity in 10 words or less? And my favorite answer was from Kim Chambers, who is this amazing um, marathon swimmer. And she just said self-expression. And I think that's my favorite definition. Um, we all have a self to express. Creativity is merely the process of expressing that self. Um, so I think there's infinite ways in which you could do that. Um, and I think that we all have something, you know, creative that we want to do in our working lives. And that's the stuff that really gives it meaning. More 10% Happier after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. 
You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. I'm going to ask a question now that harkens back to something you were talking about already, but you didn't use the phrase. I had this delicious experience listening to your podcast because you coined a phrase to describe a massive component of my internal life that I'd never been able to describe, uh, which is productivity shame. That's your phrase. Um, which I'm going to steal, although I'm going to give you credit for it, but I'm going to start talking about it a lot. Um, <laughs> because a huge, it, there's this ambient noise that I'm sometimes aware of and sometimes not in running in the background of my psyche all the time of am I getting my stuff done? Am I letting people down? Am I working on my priorities? Blah, 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 all the time. And that's what it is. It's productivity shame. I didn't have a name for it until you <laughs> described it. So can you hold forth on your view on the, on what productivity shame is and how we can deal with it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's funny. I actually arrived at that term only after, um, you know, we've been talking about this course reset that I run and getting feedback um, from people who have gone through the course um, and realizing and that phrase kind of came to me because so many people had come into the course and we're just talking about, you know, just as you described, how much they were beating themselves up, how unsatisfied they were feeling, how unrealistic their expectations were. Um, and and that kind of led me to, to really thinking about this term, productivity shame. And, I mean, I simply define it as um, you, almost, you almost said it yourself, you know, this act of setting, um, you know, completely unrealistic goals or schedules for yourself, which you know to be unrealistic – um, as you do it, and then later kind of beating yourself up for not being able to meet that schedule. Yeah, but for the missing piece for me is I often don't know my limits. Mm. I think I can do all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Of course, I'm, you know, Superman. Mm -hmm. um, and then I walk around <laughs> miserable and make other people miserable. Right. Well, and so that is kind of precisely that recalibration is um, what – hopefully happens with this idea of heart-centered productivity, right, is understanding that what your limits are, right? How much attention can you exert in a day? Like how many hours of kind of peak um, cognitive performance do you have? Um, how much time can you realistically carve out of your maybe already busy schedule to do the work that is meaningful to you? So actually – um, thinking about yourself as a human in a body with limited capacity and like truly recognizing that and let's say um, accepting that and then, um, you know, making your decisions about what you take on from that place. Because I, and I think we're all, not all, but many of us are so far removed from that place, like so sucked into this responding to other people's requests, this um, kind of speed-obsessed, efficiency-obsessed, I-can-do-everything, super-packed calendar type of working, 
um, that we, you know, have no sense of our own limits. And so that is how we fall into that cycle, right? We're just constantly making um, really, really, really unrealistic plans and then beating ourselves up about it. Um, so I think that's kind of, you know, how we get into that cycle. I'm not sure if I answered your question. Yeah, and how we get out is to make more realistic. Yeah, plans. well, I think it's just to become to 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 begin to, um, you know, kind of come back into the body and understand that we have limits and recognize those limits and accept them and then plan accordingly. So I, I, the big question that keeps coming up in my mind as I am exposed to your work is, you know, my first – Impression is that, wow, this just feels like such a merciful, like, lifeline, given my very inner, sort of inner sternness, self-directed and sometimes externally directed uh, about productivity, recognizing our limits and making sane decisions about what we can and should be doing, allowing ourselves some rest. But then I wonder, like, how do you draw that line? You know, I had the other day... I was at home. My family, my wife and child were upstate at uh, my wife's mom's house, and I had the place to myself, and I told myself I was going to work on my book. But I was just so tired that I watched a bunch of TV and then felt horrible about myself. Um, and so, like, how do I know the difference between taking the rest that I need in the to invoke the name of the book that you were talking about before and the whole idea of Charles Darwin you know, taking long walks? How do I draw the line between giving myself a break in a way that will improve my productivity in the long run as opposed to just procrastinating? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um, and I think, uh, you know, you talk about meditation a lot on this show. Um, and I think, you know, what we're talking about in this case is your creative practice, right? You're talking about writing a book. Um, and I think a creative practice is not entirely different from a meditation practice in that it deepens and it becomes much more subtle as you go along. So, you know, for me, the experience is, and, it, you know, it's most useful probably for me to talk about my personal experience at this point, is that, okay, let me, let me backpedal a little bit. So I did, a, I did an episode of the podcast um, that's called Who Are You?, without the doing. And I heard it was really good. <laughs> thank you. And so you'll know one of the things that um, I talk about is um, this book, um, Shambhala, The Path of the Warrior. I quote from that book in that particular episode. And um, the passage that I quote is about um, talking about discipline. And in, in that episode, in general, I talk about this concept of sort of tender discipline. Right. Such that's another of your that's that's a phrase you coined, right? I think so. Yeah, it's a great term. Um, another of those oxymorons, right? Hurry slowly, tender yes. discipline. Yes, heart I'm gonna steal heart center I'm productivity. A, I'm, I'm gonna <laughs> rob you blind and you intellectually because this stuff is crap. I'm not I'm giving you credit for everything, but it's such good stuff. Anyway, car carry on. Yeah, but so so it's it's looking it's it's kind of contemplating this idea of tender discipline, which really emerged from. Um, um, reading this particular book or that kind of crystallized the idea. And um, it's, um, I, I don't know if I'm going to say it's wrong, but it's Chongyam Trungpa. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. He's a, a, a very popular Tibetan Buddhist teacher. He's also very controversial. He drank himself to death and like um, slept with his followers. And uh, he was an embodiment of an ancient and also quite controversial 
concept in Buddhism of crazy wisdom. Mm. So he acted in ways that I were pretty crazy, but he also, as as you're about to talk, you know, uh, you're about to sort of paraphrase. I think uh, some of the things he said about tenderness as a put. As it relates to productivity and so he's also capable of real wisdom, but he's a conundrum for me because he did a lot of stuff that I don't mm. approve of. Right. So if we were to strain maybe the good out of the the bad or the even <laughs> the crazy, um, one of the concepts he talks about in this particular book is, is just thinking about this concept of discipline um, and this idea that if you are waiting for your discipline to become immaculate – it's never going to happen. And this kind of idea that the, of you're constantly kind of looking back at yourself and monitoring yourself, like, am I disciplined enough? Am I perfect enough, right? And that at a certain point, you kind of have to let go and just trust, and that's where the real discipline comes from. So, Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. I just want to stop you for a second. <laughs> Two things that came to mind. One is yeah. – uh, believe it was my friend Oren Sofer who's been on this podcast before he's a popular meditation teacher he's one of the most popular teachers on on the 10% happier Mm -hmm. app I think he told me a story about being on a meditation retreat where he was doing walking meditation Uh and he started weeping when he realized that his whole life and his whole meditation practice he had spent evaluating how well he had done on the last step I really that really (laughs) resonated with me that just came up in in Mm -hmm. mind as you were talking the second thing is you were just talking about letting go and trusting in some way, and I'm thinking, all right, sounds good, but how do you do that? Because the only way I know to work is to make liberal use of my internal cattle prod. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, and I, I definitely relate to that sentiment as well. Um, but what I was going to say, right, so so it was just kind of side, side digression to this idea of tender discipline and this idea of um, that in terms of actually becoming more disciplined, I think there is this piece of like trusting yourself, right? So if we come back to what we're talking about, about your creative practice um, and how you know the difference between when you're procrastinating um, and when you maybe need to just take a break and when you should work. um, What my, my own experience has been with my writing practice is that as I kind of sink more into some of these concepts of heart-centered productivity and of thinking about aligning with my body and, you know, trusting that I have a limited amount of attention, but kind of aligning with it and using it. Um, As I've kind of gone deeper into that place, um, it's become easier for me to make that distinction. So it's become easier for me to essentially um, know when I should call bullshit on myself and when I actually need to take a break, right? Because what what you're trying to figure out in those moments is, you know, am I just, um, you know, is this just resistance and I should push through it, right? Using my internal cattle prod and make myself sit down and write? Or, you know, is this literally not a moment at which because I need rest or maybe I just need to go for a walk and find some, you know, I'm just not really inspired today because that that is a certain factor sometimes. You know, how do you make that distinction? And for me, the more that I've kind of just, um, you know, to make the meditation comparison again, just kind of sit in my practice, which is my creative practice, right, kind of show up and and be a bit more trusting and gentle with myself, the easier it's become to make that distinction about when I should um, kind of call bullshit or not. 
But I'll give you one just like yeah. actionable tip. Great. <laughs> Great. <laughs> which is, because um, I know you want something more tangible, which is, I think that, um, I think it's useful to think about um, whatever, you know, the creative project is, is having a certain energy to it, right? And so when you put the project down and you don't look at it for a day or two or weeks, um, you've kind of left the energy, right? You sort of turned it off. And um, you don't really know what the energy feels like anymore. And so some, so it's you're not motivated, right? You don't have that momentum. You don't have that rhythm of having been working on the project. And so when, once you've kind of broken rhythm and left the energy of that project, I think, um, you know, sometimes it's difficult to know, like, okay, am I in, like, you're just become disconnected from it. So I think when you have those moments too, it's good to just sit down for 15 minutes and, you know, kind of feel the energy and like, you know, maybe start to write a little bit or try to start to write. And, and a lot of times just by getting back in there, you'll go, ah, and the flow comes. But sometimes, you know, you get back in there and you're like, oh, no, like I'm not feeling it today. Um, so I think also acknowledging the role that momentum plays in creative projects, which I think is, is huge, right? That kind of building, you know, an object in motion wants to stay in motion, an object at rest wants to stay at rest. Um, but rather than beating yourself up about it, if you really don't know, just kind of like dive back into the energy for 15 or 20 minutes, see if it picks up. And if it, you know, doesn't pick up and you just really feel exhausted or you really feel uninspired, then, you know, kind of say, okay, today's not the day. That's great. I like that. That's very useful, actually. <laughs> what about deadlines? So I'm a journalist and I've, for 25 years, have uh, worked and before that in, in college, uh, we all had deadlines. Um, and there was an, a certain, there was and is for me a certain adrenaline associated with like, this is airing tonight or, you know, 9 11 just happened. You're going to be on the air tonight. You've got to finish writing your script. And so I think about that as I'm in the book process and I'm thinking about, okay, I want to get in, I want to have saner, more self-compassionate workflow, but will I be able to, you know, do I need deadlines and do I need that adrenaline in order to get anything done? And how do I balance between the two? Do I create artificial deadlines? But then if I do that, am I going to set them realistically? Um, and is there a way in in the midst of all of this that I can is there any hope that I could actually enjoy the work while I'm doing it? I just said a lot, but hey, you can pick apart anything in there that you think was cogent. Well, you're making me think of um, – I did an interview with um, Oliver Berkman. I don't know. Oh, if yes. You know He's him. been on the show. Yeah. Very funny sort of anti-self-help, self-help yes. writer. Yes. Um, and he's writing a book about productivity right now. Yeah, yeah, he is. Um, and he, anyway, he's a very thoughtful and um, also very funny guy. And he introduced me to this idea of um, Hofstadter's uh, Law, I think it's called, um, which is um, basically the um, idea that everything – so it specifically pertains to creative projects or anytime you're doing something new for the first time and basically says that um, – more or less, if we totally distilled it down, everything takes longer than you think it will, right? <laughs> and so, and that even if you um, acknowledge that everything takes longer than you think it will and you project your schedule based on that assertion, that it'll still take longer than you think it will. I mean, it's, I think it's a little bit of a joke-like principle. Um, <laughs> but in any case, right, this idea that particularly with any project that demands any kind of creativity, it's really kind of impossible to know how long 
it will take, right? So what do you do about deadlines in that scenario and how does that relate to motivation? Um, and, you know, I can speak specifically to one of the things that I talk about in the reset course, which is, um, you know, we talked about goals earlier. Um, I like to set goals in small windows. So maybe three month windows, or you mm. could even do half of that six weeks. Um, and I'd like to do that specifically because you never know how long something is going to take. And so if you give yourself sort of a smaller range goal, so, you know, if you're writing a book, like the goal is not like finished manuscript, you know, the goal is something that you think you could realistically accomplish in maybe six weeks or three months. Finish right? chapter two. Right. You break it down. And so then, but your publisher needs you to have a finished manuscript by some point, <laughs> right? So that she can plan. Um, True. So True. how do you? Okay, so well, but on. let's say you have, you know, you usually have nine months or a year to write the book, typically. Um, you know, so let's say you set a goal for six weeks or something. But the, the point being, setting a small goal, so then you can assess like how long did that take, you know, and then you can make another six week goal and adjust to something more realistic. So the goal isn't something giant and you work for nine months only to realize like, oh my God, my projections were completely off. You know, you set something smaller so you can kind of track your progress and stay motivated over this small um, portion of time. It also makes it easier to track your progress and stay motivated because the goal is in sight. It's not really far away. Um, But it also gives you that moment to check in and then recalibrate whatever the next kind of baby step goal you set is because you're probably going to be really off in terms of your projections about how much you can accomplish. Why do we work? It's just terrible. My father used to call it the curse of the middle class. I'm going to play the lottery today and never work again. It's the worst. Um, Do you find that you can actually, while engaging in – Creative work, which again you very helpfully described, not as just necessarily making paper mache uh, or doing <laughs> arts and crafts. It's really like anything that involves problem solving. Do you find that you can actually enjoy it? Because I have a hard time imagining enjoying writing a book. Yeah, I mean that is, uh, you know, that's probably one of the, the the core sort of principles of this idea of heart centered productivity that we didn't get to is this idea of enjoying the process. Um, which, you know, and I do all of these things. I do this podcast. I make this course. I explore all these questions because they're challenges that I myself have. I am like an extremely, extremely outcome oriented person. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm always thinking, I'm always thinking about what's next. I'm always thinking about, um, the end goal, but you know, in the grand scheme of things, right. I mean, how could you, so many times I've arrived at whatever I thought would be the thing that would somehow make me feel great. And, you know, as I'm sure you know, it never does. You know, oh, if I publish this book or, oh, if I make this conference or, oh, I do this thing, you know. And every time you arrive at that thing, it's always kind of like, well, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it wasn't as great as I thought it'd be. Buddha had a word for this. He called it suffering. It's the <laughs> idea that you uh, – that that – we're going to get that next thing, that next meal, that next bathroom break, that next vacation, and finally we'll be happy. It just doesn't work. Insatiability always reasserts itself. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and I think here – so, but here's the twist. Here's the twist that can make you want to get into the process. So I told you at the outset of um, the course we talk about goal setting. We talk about how you think about your goals. And um, one of the things that um, makes people um, really not – achieve their goals is spending a lot of time thinking about the outcome 
of the goal and talking to other people about the outcome of the goal. <laughs> because what happens is it makes you feel like you've already achieved the goal, right? It kind of creates this sort of like mind trick where you just you feel like you've already achieved it because you spent so much time thinking about it. And, you know, so when you look at research around that, people who um, essentially spend, you know, more time um, focused on uh, the process rather than on the outcome means that you're actually more likely to um, achieve the goal in the end. And, of course, well, enjoy yeah, the process. You're saying, you're saying if I spend a lot of time talking about the outcome as if it's already done – I'll be happier or less happy? Well, you'll decrease your motivation. Okay, so that makes sense to me. I thought yeah. you were saying the opposite. Yeah, it kind of drains the motivation. Yeah, away. because I feel like I'm never going to finish this book. And so talking about it as, an, as something that might actually exist in the world is absolutely uh, deflating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but But talking about finishing a chapter I'm working on or transcribing uh, an interview I did, well, that's – I can imagine that mm-hmm. happening. Well, and here's another thing in terms of enjoying the process um, that I think is has been really um, a big change for me is shifting to working in a more analog way. I find that whenever I do something in analog, I always enjoy it significantly more than um, when I do it in digital. So, for instance, specifically you're talking about writing, talking about transcribing, talking about looking at interviews um, – I used to um, edit all of the interviews for my podcast, you know, in a Word document on my computer. Um, Now I print them out and, you know, I go, I get up from my desk and I go sit on my couch by the window and I edit it there. um, And then I, you know, whatever. And then I come back and I make my changes at my computer. And I find that um, I enjoy the process significantly more when I'm doing it on paper. I'm not hunched over my desk. Um, And, you know, that applies similarly to there's a whole section of the course that literally talks about working in analog and creativity. But same thing, like if I'm giving a talk and I have to make a keynote for that talk, um, what I'll do is I'll, you know, I'll get like a big sketch pad and I'll go, you know, sit down in a chair, sit down on my sofa and I'll really map out like, OK, what am I really trying to say? What are the bones of this talk? And I never go to my desk. I never go to the computer until I'm like really, really, really clear mm-hmm. on what I want to say and ready to kind of execute. And at that point, then I'll go to the digital space. I'll go to the computer. Um, because when you kind of start out in that digital space, um, there's just too much. You can get really into polishing and tweaking, right? Like, okay, what should the color be? What should the font size be? Oh, what animated GIF am I going to get to, like, make this part of the talk <laughs> funny, right? But And so you go through and you do all these things or you get distracted by all these things, but you still haven't really – you don't even know what you want to say, right? Because you, there's just so many distractions available in the digital space. And I also think the digital is really about, like, executing and polishing and being precise, Right. And when you're in the early stages of a creative project, you're trying to figure out what you want to say. You don't really want to be precise. You want to be messy. And that's really easy to do on a sketch pad or on a whiteboard or in an analog space in a way that's kind of difficult to do in digital. So I think that's a huge shift in terms of enjoying the process more is um, moving things out of the digital space into the analog space when you can, um, you know, just and also allowing yourself to be away from your desk, in a different space, you know, kind of using your hands, um, you know, doing things in sort of a more natural way. It's interesting. I sort of naturally do this. I feel a little guilty in terms of 
my contributions to the environment because I'm constantly printing things out Mm -hmm. and working on the paper and then going back to the computer and doing the fixes and the polishes there and then printing it out again. And I find that stepping away from the computer does make me happy. I wasn't doing it for any – I just sort of intuitively knew this. Nobody ever told me to do it. But I still hate every part of writing. I hate it. I hate it. And yet I'm compelled to do it. I love coming up with ideas and I really feel powerfully – I feel very strongly that um, at least with – this book that I it, it, I want to write it, but I, I just hate the doing of the thing. And it reminds me, some of the, the cliche about books is nobody likes writing a book. Everybody likes having written a book. So maybe there's just no way around this, but I keep finding myself thinking, okay, maybe I can use these little hacks, which you, you're uh, proposing here. I mean, some of them are not just little hacks. They're big structural rethinks, philosophical uh, uh, approaches that are different that are really important so I'm not devaluing them um, but I, I I think there it may just be the case for me that the work is always going to feel a little crappy just because it's hard yeah absolutely and I, I, I can't remember her name but there's this is a poor distillation of it but uh, a writer that I really like and she says you know like research is heaven and writing is hell you yeah, know and yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah, right Sounds, you know, sounds about right to me. That's, I definitely, it's always a struggle in, in many ways, you know, and you're like, why did I choose that? I I seem to continually feel compelled to do this thing. And yet, um, but the other thing I think if you, one thing that I am, um, uh, that I recommend if you do print everything out is um, save your copies and let them stack up on your desk. So you have like a little testament of progress to all mm-hmm. of the revisions Hmm. And different things, um, you know, how far you've progressed through the writing of the book, because that's kind of satisfying hmm. um, to do. That's what I did with my last book. I let all of the uh, edits just accrue in a huge stack on my desk. So, you know, when I would get to a difficult point and be really frustrated and kind of be like, Ugh, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to figure out this chapter. I would kind of look back at that and be like, OK, well, you, you know, you went through this before. You made it through the other side and, you know, you'll figure it out again. Uh, I'm, t- I'm mindful of your time, but I have. I have a few more questions, if that's okay. Yeah. Say more about tender discipline. Are you able to? Are you really able to uh, motivate yourself in a way that is tender as opposed to self-critical? Well, I mean, it's an on, it's an ongoing challenge. I'm significantly better at it than I used to be. I will say. Um, I think that, you know. Here's the thing. Let me give you an example of this. Um, There's this um, really amazing book called Scarcity. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, By um, Elder Shafir and I think uh, Sendal Malanathan. I might be mispronouncing his name. Um, But it looks at um, two types of scarcity. um, Scarcity of money and scarcity of time. Um, I imagine most of your listeners are probably more afflicted with scarcity of time. And, um, you know, so they really they really looked at from an analytical, from a research perspective, what happens when you work in this overscheduled, overbusy, overstimulated way um, that most of us are working in. And what they found was that it creates a kind of tunnel vision for people um, where you're really only able to think about the next thing, right? The next meeting you have to get to, the next email you have to respond to. And what that tunnel vision does is it makes you less controlled. It makes you less insightful and it makes you less forward thinking. Um, And so if you think about 
those qualities, less controlled, less insightful, less forward thinking. You think about what you need to complete any type of creative project or anything with meaning. Those are the things that you need, right? Um, and so what they talk about as the solution is, um, you know, not working in this super jam-packed, time-constrained, you know, kind of way, right? Creating, um, they use the term slack, actually. Um, I use the term white space, so creating kind of white space in your schedule. Um, And I use the term white space because um, thinking about, like, design, right? So if you know any designers, uh, they're looking at a graphic design, they talk about white space, right? And white space is... um, you know, right, what what kind of helps you, the, the blank space, um, but it's not negative space in a design. It's the space that allows you to kind of um, understand what you should be focusing on your, your attention on, right, what's in the positive space. Um, and it creates, um, you know, kind of un, an uncluttered environment, right? Um, and essentially white space is what sort of brings harmony to the overall design. Um, but if you take that concept, you think about white space and you look at the way, like let's say you look at your calendar, your daily ca- calendar, right? Most of us have like zero white space in our calendar. Like if we were looking at our calendar as a design, it would be like a disgusting, cluttered, awful, busy design, right? Um, and so I think about this concept of white space as, you know, that's the thing that um, gives harmony and balance to your day is what most of us are missing. I am going to answer your question. This is a long route. I, have, I, I don't trust myself, <laughs> but I trust you. So. Um, but so you think about, you know, how we're working this really jam-packed way. I don't know. Like, it's like if you could create a visual embodiment of self-criticism, it would kind of look like this jam-packed schedule, right? Like, how, how could you be gentle with yourself in that scenario right there's just there's no room there's no time right there's no time to just even reflect and kind of be like oh hey wait no you're being too harsh like uh, let's think about this different you don't have time for that right um so i think my answer to your question is you know is we're able to kind of pull back from this overscheduled, overwhelmed way of working and create even little pockets of kind of white space for um to go for a walk or to just contemplate your creative project, or to do nothing at all, or to meditate. Um, that space itself creates the opportunity for this kind of tenderness, right? And if you think about, I mean, even if you just think about, li- you know, like a very literal representation of space, right? Like if you were um, in a small closet, you know, and like how you would kind of feel about like, what kind of mindset that would create and what kind of level of comfortability that would create and what kind of even maybe like voice that would create if you're in this tiny, tiny constrained space versus if you're in, say, like a cathedral, right? You have more white space. You have more space around you, right? There's this opportunity for opening and for tenderness and for compassion that feels super different, you know? And so I think when you think about your schedule you know, you want to start to open up those those pockets of space and that creates a little bit of space where you can be more generous with yourself. You can be more tender with yourself. Penultimate question. You don't have a meditation practice, although, as I understand it, there are some meditations involved in the reset course, so I don't quite understand that. Maybe you can explain it. But, 
But it seems to me like a when I kept asking you how to do these various things, uh, you know, your various precepts, how can we um, operationalize them? One of the things I kind of half expect you to say, even though I know you don't meditate, was, well, actually, meditation can be really useful in, in these because it boosts your self-awareness. It can boost your ability to be self-compassionate, et cetera, et cetera. Do you agree with that? Do you agree that meditation could be a useful component to what you're describing? And if so, why aren't you doing it? By the yes. way, that wasn't meant to induce shame. I actually <laughs> think you're doing fine without it, but I'm just curious. Um, no, it is absolute. I mean, of course, meditation can be incredibly useful for all of these things. And as I just said, right, we're thinking about opening up um, space, time and space and uh, as a way of being more gentle with yourself. And of course, I think that's precisely what meditation does. Um, I doesn't work for me. <laughs> Maybe I'm more gentle than I used to be, but I'm a hard case. Anyway. Um, I do I, I do meditate. Um, I just, I don't have, I would say like, to me, I don't have a formal meditation practice. Huh. Um, to me, when I say that, what I mean is is kind of doing it with some regularity and, and having really kind of thought about it. Um, but I do have... Um, a Reiki practice. I practice Reiki, um, which I've been doing for a little over a year, so not very long. Um, but to me, that and you can practice Reiki on yourself, of course. Well, I don't even others. really know what it is. I have one friend who's a Reiki master, and she described it to me. But it's like a massage, kind of. Um, it's a form of energy healing, and it has to do um, with the sort of seven chakras of the body. And the is there idea any is. For this? Um, scientific evidence, I think, is, um, you know, um, spotty, perhaps. <laughs> um, but the idea of Reiki is that you, as the Reiki practitioner, are sort of a vessel for this universal healing energy, not that you yourself are doing something, which, of course, can sound very out there. Um, I find it's much better to experience Reiki. So we can do a Reiki session sometime if you like. Okay. Um, that is much more likely to convert someone than describing it, which I find even you know, when I've had Reiki described to me intellectually, I'm like, I don't know, is that really a thing? Um, but in any case, um, what it feels like to me, practicing Reiki on someone, is very similar to, I think, a loving-kindness meditation. Um, you know, we don't have very many opportunities in our culture to um, touch someone in a gentle and loving and also non-sexual way. Um, and, you know, when you do Reiki with someone, you really kind of tap into their energy. You really feel their energy, which means you also maybe really feel their hopes or their sadness or their grief or whatever those things are there inside of them, um, which, of course, I think inspires a lot of compassion. So to me, um, that's been and, – and then you can also practice it on yourself, doing self-healing. Um, so to me, that actually feels a bit like meditation, and that's kind of been my exploration over the past year. Um, but I think that the reason, so, and, and as I just told you, I've actually been doing a little bit, I literally just went on a mindful self-compassion retreat, um, in which there was quite a bit of meditation, although it wasn't a meditation retreat. So I'm actually just moving into meditation a little bit more. And I think for me, the reason that I'm moving into it more is purely for like spiritual reasons. And I think that I didn't approach it before because I wasn't maybe in that place, um, 
But I think a lot of people initially come to meditation because of, you know, they want to create what we were talking about, a little more space, a little more time, a little less anxiety, a little less stress. Um, and I dealt with all of those things through sort of these other, you know, all the stuff that we've been talking about. Um, so I think I didn't need to come to meditation for those, those reasons. Um, and so I think I probably am kind of coming to it now, probably for more spiritual reasons. Final question. I want to get you to plug everything. You've talked about the course. You mentioned that you wrote a book. Maybe you've written others. Uh, where can we find you on social media, website, everything? Give us everything. Yeah. Well, my personal website podcast. is com. And then there's the podcast, Hurry Slowly, which we talked about. Um, we talked about the productivity shame episode, the who are you without the doing. There's about 50 episodes now. Um, that's at hurryslowly.co, hurryslowly.co. And then there's the related course, which is Reset, which I call a cosmic tune-up for your workday, um, which is at reset-course.com. And are you on social media or do you avoid that? Stuff? I am only on Twitter at JKGLEI. This has been really helpful. and it's a, I mean, your podcast is great, and I'm going to look into all this other stuff. And you wrote a book called Managing Your Day-to-Day, -Day, right? Yeah, that was part of the 99U series, Manage Your Day-to-Day, okay. -day, and there's a couple other books in the series as well, which you can find on Amazon. I know that our mutual friend, Sebene Selassie, who is a meditation teacher and also a coach, gives that book to her clients. So that, in, in and of itself, is a massive endorsement for me, in my <laughs> little world yeah uh, for me too i was i was very excited about that <laughs> um thank you so much really oh, appreciate it thank you so much for having me this is so much fun okay thanks again to jocelyn k gly really enjoyed that conversation um and have been integrating her recommendations into into my work to the best of my ability since we recorded that if you enjoyed this episode or if you particularly love any other episode that we've done it'd be awesome if you could share it either directly with a friend or a group of friends or on social media. That, I think, is a great way to help us grow the show. As I've said before, every podcast host makes these requests. There's a reason we do it, because it actually really helps to grow the show. Uh, let's do uh, some voicemails. Here's number one. Hey, Dan, it's Jeff. I'm calling from a flop house in Duluth. Uh, not really, but I'm calling from Duluth near a flop house, and um, I'm having a hard time finding the motivation to get started again. And I think that the whole problem with getting going has a lot to do with self-worth, worthiness, worthiness issues. And again, I just like any ideas you might have about getting a good meditation practice and overcoming the initial inertia. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jeff. I love that your your joke about the flop house in Duluth. When I wrote that in my first book, and I kept that was like kind of a repeated. That was a refrain that I kept coming back to. Um, I've I've heard from a lot of people like why do you hate Duluth so much? And the the good news is there are so many Duluths. Um, there are several around the country. I don't know which one you're calling from, but I'm sure there's not a flop house there. But I I, I appreciate the call. Uh, I've been thinking about your question because you know I wish I had more specificity on what you mean by self worthiness or self worth and how exactly that is hindering you. But I, I had a couple of thoughts, and and uh, Ray Hausman are ace head of coaching, the head of coaching on the 10% uh, hap Happier app. She's, she's in charge of all the coaches we have who interact with the users. Um, she's weighed in as well. So the one thought for me was that maybe a good practice for you to start would be, and here I go again with this word, this term, self-compassion, 
we have uh, guided self-compassion practices up on the 10% Happier app. You could probably also, if you don't want to subscribe, you want to just search for them on Google. I'm sure you could find a few. That that might be a good way to start if if self-worthy and if this inner – if you've got this inner dialogue around you know criticizing yourself, maybe that's a good place to start. The other thing is if you are running this storyline in your head of – you know, I know meditation is good for me, but I'm not worth it. I'm not worth investing in in that way if consciously or subconsciously that's going on with you. One one way to maybe get over the hump would be to commit to doing it a little bit every day for four to six weeks. Just drop the story for a second and say, you know what, I'm just going to commit for four to six weeks and see what happens. The reason I say that is because I think the way this practice really gets its hooks in you is when you see the benefits. That's when you move from extrinsic motivation. In other words, when I listen to this guy's podcast. I feel guilty that I'm not doing the thing or, uh, you know, the, the scientific community is telling me I should meditate and or my wife or whatever. And that that's other people telling you to doing a thing to do a thing. You can move from that extrinsic motivation to intrinsic motivation. In other words, you do it because you want to do it. That starts to happen when you start to see the benefits, in my experience. And what are the benefits? And we've talked about it before, but reduced distraction and even more valuable, the mindfulness, the ability not to be so yanked around by all the various storylines you've been running since you were a kid, one of which may be uh, this whole thing around self-worth. Or maybe you notice after six weeks of meditate of like five minutes a day of meditation or five minutes most days, which might give you a just might be easy, an easier way to do this. Five minutes of most day uh, daily ish meditation, five weeks, five or five or sorry, five minutes of uh, four to six weeks of daily ish um, meditation. You might notice, oh, your anger uh, hits you in the middle of a conversation with somebody, but you're you see it. And you let it pass before you say something incredibly stupid. A moment like that where you clearly see the benefits can push you into the range of uh, intrinsic motivation, which really can get the train rolling. This, what I just said, I think, fortunately for me, jibes with uh, what Ray Hausman, the aforementioned Ray Hausman, had to say that she struggled uh, for for years to get a regular practice going. And the thing that really got it um, locked down for uh, and locked in for her was seeing the benefits that she was more patient and kind to herself and others. And that made a big difference. And she too says, try five to eight minutes a day and see what you notice. Yeah. So I threw a lot at you. Hopefully some of it will stick and stay away from those flop houses. Thank you. Uh, one more. Here we go. Hi, Dan. My name is Natalie. Um, I was just listening to one of your podcasts, and she was doing an hour meditation a day. And immediately, my head started going, well, if I did an hour meditation, I wouldn't have the time to work out. Um, I would also be getting less sleep. And um, I suffer from some health issues, so it feeds into my day, and there just aren't enough hours in the day to do all of them. So in my head, I'm like, well, which one is, is the most important for my physical, mental emotional well-being is it you know getting less sleep and doing an hour of meditation or is sleep more important or is making sure I can get some physical activity in important um when we aren't able to do all of those uh it's hard for me to know where I should be putting my attention rather than scattering it trying to do everything 
you know, five minutes of meditation instead. Yeah. So any help with that would be great. Thank you. It's a great question. It's an important question. Nobody's asked it before. So um, I'm glad you did. I'll just tell you what I do. And this may be controversial in some circles. I don't know. But for me, I really prioritize sleep and physical exercise over meditation. That doesn't mean I don't meditate, but my number one priority is sleep. And I especially feel this way after having sat down for quite a while uh, recently with Dr. Matthew Walker, who's an eminent sleep expert at the University University of California in Berkeley. We're going we're gonna to post that in the coming months. Sleep seems to me like the apex predator of habits, like the it's hard to do anything else if you're tired. And there's just an enormous amount of research that shows that the whole system, all systems break down, you know, under sleep deprivation. So I don't, I'm going to stay away from being too prescriptive. I'm just going to tell you what I do, which is that I go for sleep uh, first and foremost. Second, physical activity. I've had depressions for, I've struggled with it so much over the course of my life. It is the best antidepressant as far as I know. Uh, so I really, Try to be, and I'm, you know, vaguely narcissistic, and I have to look at my stupid face on television. So I'm highly motivated to exercise. So I, I really make sure I do that six days a week. I do try to clear out quite a bit of time for meditation, but if in your schedule you're finding that after having gotten enough sleep and doing a little bit of exercise that you don't have an hour to meditate or something like that, I don't see that as a problem. So do what you can. Obviously, I'm I'm kind of of the to to a point. I'm of the view that the more uh, the better. But if if five minutes is honestly what you can sanely fit into your day, then I see nothing to feel badly about there. But you know, you may want to see if there are other areas in the day where you know you're just mindlessly checking Facebook. That 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 could be a time where you meditate or like right before bed. I actually really have gotten into doing quite a bit right before bed. In fact, last night. I'm recording this on a set. I'm recording the intro and outro to this episode on a Saturday morning. Last night, I was having trouble going to bed, and I meditated for quite a while, got into bed, was tossing and turning. And per Matthew Walker's advice, instead of tossing and turning too long, which can turn the bed into a kind of, you know, a crucible, I got back out of bed, put my sweatshirt on, went to the corner of the room, and meditated again. And then I, until I got super sleepy. And then I went back to bed and I fell asleep. So that's a place where you could probably fit in quite a bit of meditation. Um, there may be uh, areas where you could sneak it in at lunchtime uh, at the office, uh, maybe areas where uh, in your commute, if you're taking an Uber or a taxi or a subway or a train, or if you drive right before you get out of the car to go into the house or right before you get out of the car to go into the office. Lots of little places I would look for. So that's this is an area where I'm being prescriptive trying to slot it in throughout the day in in strategic ways, I think that is a really good idea. Best of luck with your health issues and uh, really appreciate the call, Natalie. Thank you. Speaking of thank yous, let me just thank everybody who helps me do this show. And there are a lot of people, Samuel, Johns, Grace Livingston, Mike Dubusky, who uh, is the one who's uh, in the engineering booth running, uh, running the boards while I record this, Lauren Hartzog, and the chief, the boss, Ryan Kessler. We'll be back next week with part two uh, of the self-compassion series. I can't believe I'm saying self-compassion. And then part three the week after that. And one other thing to look out for in just a couple days, we're going to drop a a special self-compassion themed meditation from Sharon Salzberg. 
We'll see you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.